Hey everybody, this month's roundup is brought to you by Arcane Wonders and their new game expansion, Aquatica Coral Reefs. And I gotta say folks, I have been excited about this ever since I heard about it. I love Aquatica, one of the best engine builders of recent years. And this new expansion is bringing us new characters, new manta rays that uh, change turn order and stuff like that, new objectives, but all that pales in comparison to the corals. This is a new concept where we now have entwined drafting. When you recruit a new character, you'll also get a coral that you install on your personal player board that will change it and give you new access to powers and abilities and stuff like that. Plus, it comes with little cool miniature coral pieces too. So, it looks like an amazing game is going to get even better with Aquatica Coral Reefs, and I'm very excited for it, and I want to say thank you to Arcane Wonders for supporting this month's Roundup. And folks... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. February, even though it was a very short month, was a very busy month for me and Jen. We played 24 new games uh, over the last month. We also crossed back from Mexico in the United States. I'm here in beautiful Sedona, Arizona, one of the most beautiful towns I've ever seen anywhere in the world. I should have a nice backdrop of all the cool red mountains, but... Um, You'll have to make do with this lovely little stream that is right next to where we have camped. Anyway, folks, uh, enough about updates of life on the road. I'm just here to tell you about 24 games. And like always, I'm going to do it in countdown format, starting with my least favorite, ending with my most favorite. And we're going to start with number 24 on the list, Mind Up. And I gotta say, there's nothing really wrong with this game. It's a very simple, little, abstract, fast-playing card game. Um, but I have never, ever really been a fan of um, blind bidding auction-style games, and that is what this is. Everybody has a hand of cards with different numbers, um, and we see a bunch of cards uh, that have different colors on them, and we are going to bid, um, and basically the cards are laid out left to right. If I bid a 24 and you bid a 26, your card will go further to the right than mine. And as the game evolves, it's very, very clear who values what different color cards. And so you are hoping, hey, I really want that card away on the left. I should bid really low, but other people might bid lower and push you over to the right and you end up getting a card you don't want. It's a clever game, make no mistake, and it's nice and fast playing, but it's very chaotic. And really, uh, like I said, it doesn't make me a fan of blind bidding anymore. But for folks who like that sort of thing, it might be worth checking out. That's number 24 on the list, Mind Up. Then number 23 is Revolver Noir. And I gotta say, folks, uh, this is a month of Button Shy games. Button Shy is actually running a uh, crowdfunding campaign on GameFound right now, and I'm gonna talk about some of the games they're uh, you know, bringing back. Uh, but I played six games this week, and or this month. Revolver Noir is my least favorite, but 
It's not a reflection of the game, just not our kind of thing. This is a two-player head-to-head game where we are facing off in a gunfight. We're running around a big multi-story mansion, uh, and everybody ha both players have a simple map showing how all the different rooms connect, and there's things like you know secret passages and unique powers for the different rooms and whatnot, security rooms. And every round, players play a card to determine where are they going to move or are they going to try and fire into an adjacent room. And this is all deduction, all trying to figure out where do you think I am going to be next. Last time you saw me, I was in the far A, which gave me more, uh, am I still nearby? Have I uh, somehow made it to the second floor? Am I in the basement? Well, you've got to make your best guess, play, and hopefully I don't outplay you. Very sharp battle of wits, really nicely done, just not our cup of tea, but for players who want a really clever two-player head-to-head battle of deduction, you might want to check out Revolve Noir. Number 22 uh, is Oathsworn, and I gotta say, uh, this is a bit of a disappointment for me. I was so excited about this game for so long. The heir apparent to Gloomhaven does a lot of things better than Gloomhaven. A lot of people think it supplants Gloomhaven. Well. At the end of the day, I really respect all the really cool things. I love the option to go for um, cards to determine combat and you know event resolution rather than dice. Or if the decks aren't really looking very good because you know what's in a deck still, you can switch to dice. I love that system. I love the idea that, hey, if there's going to have to be four characters adventuring no matter what, let's make sure um, that if you're playing a two-player game that I have, I have a main character and then I have like a simplified sidekick character. I like how that was done. There's a lot I really love here. But at the end of the day, uh, it was still, for both me and Jen, a bit overwhelming. When we sat down to play it as a two-player game, this the first mission, we're like, oh my god, so many rules with the way gigantic monsters can move and move things. And, you know, it, I, I, it was just so overwhelming. Maybe five years ago, when I first got into Gloomhaven, if I tried uh, Oathsworn out, I would have said, hey, there's some real competition here. But... Jen and I just find we're not as interested as we used to be in really long and really complex simulations of fantasy combat, you know, trying to, to kill a bunch of monsters. And, um, you know, the, the core gameplay hand management is so brilliant. This idea of battle flow, where I play a card into, uh, and it, it goes into slots 0, 1, 2, or 3. And if I put it into slot 2, because that's where it's supposed to go, all the previous cards I've put into slot 2 now move down to slot 1 and get closer to me uh, being able to recover them. That is so brilliant. I love it so much, and I wish it was in a game that was closer to the loop or Pandemic in, in terms of, or, or Legends of Andor. This game is so overwrought with so many rules. I spent so many hours preparing to try to play this game. When I finally got to it, I was still so overwhelmed. I just couldn't enjoy it. Like I said, you know, when I was a younger man, I might have had more uh, strength for it. But as it is, Oathsworn is just too overwrought. It's too big too complex. Um, you know, maybe if each of us only had a character, because even with the cool idea of, hey, I've got a simpler sidekick, they were still complex characters. They were still characters that are more complex than the, the characters of Legends of Andor, for example. It was just too much, which is why, sadly, breaks my heart, Osorn comes in at number 22. Then we've got number 21, 
Hierarchy. Now, this is another game from Button Shy. It is a very clever battle of wits between two players. Uh, there's a deck of cards. I forget how many. Uh, 18. I think it's always 18 cards in a Button Shy game, right? And we each get half of the deck. And um, these cards all have ki cool kinds of special powers and a number on them. Numbered 1 to 21, I think. And on your turn, all you're going to do is play another card to the growing stack of cards. The trick is the card you play has to be a higher number than what was played previously by your opponent. Then you will activate the power of the card. That's it. I've just explained all the rules of the game to you. The trick is somebody loses if they're the first to run out of cards. So you want to find a way to keep being able to hold on to your cards or recover cards back and outlast your opponent. And that's where all the cool powers of all these cards come in. Because they'll say, hey, if you play this card, you can break the rule of numbers, but only if this other card is already in play, or this card will let you reclaim this other card, or it'll reclaim itself under certain circumstances. So it's a very, very fun, puzzly game fast playing and again Jen and I are not looking for really a clever battle of wits where we're just trying to say ha I thought you thought you won but ha ha I've got this uh, trick up my sleeve but it's so smart and I could think for most people who want to have a head-to-head -head battle of wits you know a Vicini style duel hierarchy uh, you know and but unlike a lot of battle of wits style games there's no what do you call it um Oh, deduction or anything like that. It's just pure head games, and it's really smart. Just not our cu cup of tea. Number 21, Hierarchy. Then number 20 is another one from Button Shy, Antimony, which um, is a two-player head-to-head game where we are wizards traveling backwards and forwards in time, grabbing artifacts to try to make the perfect set of artifacts and score points. The trick is I've got to play on my turn a card from my hand. I can either play it for its color, which lets me move backwards in time to a certain spot, or its number, which lets me move forward in time to a certain spot. Or I might have those backwards. It might be numbers are backwards and colors are forwards. But anyway, wherever I move to based on the card I play, I swap that card onto the you know the central timeline and take the other card off the table. And like I said, we are racing as fast as we can to build the perfect set of cards in our hands so we can score points. Really sharp. Very fun. Um, you know, and actually I, I think Jen and I enjoyed this one quite a bit more than some of the other button shy games we played this month because you know it's it's more of a race. It's less of trying to outwit your opponent and you know ruin their plans and come out ahead of them. Uh, we really kind of enjoyed the core central puzzly element. But at the end of the day, it is a very chaotic game. And I could have the perfect plan, but you just happen to move into the perfect spot that prevents it. And um, you know, Jen and I. At the end of the day, it is still a head-to-head -head battle where we are constantly accidentally messing up each other's plans all the time. So it just didn't work so well for us. But I did think it was really, really sharp. Um, number 20, Antimony. Then number 19 is Mind Map. Now, this is a party game that is very cool. Um, basically, you've got an XY axis out on the board. In the center, there is a random card that is a random item like a coffee machine. And um, off to the side, there are a bunch of items based on the number of players, and each player gets one of those items secretly assigned to them. So you might get uh, a DVD player. I might get a, uh, a, a, a hubcap. 
Um, and so uh, what you have to do is on each of the X and Y axis, there has been a randomly assigned um, uh, descriptor like the perfect gift for a 10 year old or um, causes extreme stress. And so I've got a coffee cup or a coffee machine and I got to ask myself, or no, no, I've got a hubcap and in the center of the table is a coffee machine. Does a hubcap cause more or less stress than a coffee machine? And is a hubcap a better or a worse gift for a 10 year old than a coffee machine? Based on what I think, I'm going to put a marker for my piece, which nobody knows what it is, somewhere on the XY axis. Um, you know, is it above or below? Is it to the left or the right of the central thing? And everybody else is doing this at the same time. And after everybody's figured this out, everybody has to take their best guess of, oh, um, well, okay, uh, uh, you know, the, that, right, so this thing is a terrible gift for a, t a 10 year old, they're saying, but it causes no stress. So, of all the things out there, what do I think it is? Is it a hubcap? A hubcap is a terrible, you know, it might be. It's not a particularly good, although maybe it's not a bad gift for a 10 year old because I can imagine a 10 year old using a hubcap to play, you know, simple games with. Maybe um, I shouldn't say it's a terrible gift. Maybe I should say it's an okay gift. It's really clever. Um, I don't know why it's called mind map. It should have been called it's all relative because it's all about me trying to put my stuff to the left or the right of where you put your marker and then everybody guessing. And after it's all revealed, everybody explaining themselves and hilarity ensues. This is a brilliant party game. I think a lot of people are really going to love it. I loved it too. It only comes in at number 19 because at the end of the day, I'm not really looking for party game experiences. But this one definitely goes up there with your, um, your uh, um, you know, uh, uh, just say ones or uh, like we just, well, actually we just did a uh, top 10 party games um, a couple of weeks ago. If I'd played this, I might have put this on the list. I think it's really, really sharp. And I highly recommend it for people looking for party games that make everyone, you know, stretch their creative muscles um, and then have to justify those creative decisions they made. Mind map, number 19. Then we got number 18, French Quarter. Now this is the uh, latest game from the team of Pinchback and Riddle and Hill. Um, and it's another one of their super duper heavy duty, um, you know, uh, rolling rights like Fleet the Dice Game and Motor City and Three Sisters. So it's a complex maybe not as heavy as their other ones. I would say it's a bit lighter, but it's very, very clever. What we're trying to do is plot out a path for our tourist meeple in New Orleans, um, you know, trying to go to different streets, and every round, it's entwined drafting. I'm going to pick a card that determines how my meeple can move around, whether it's on a tram or whether it's on a ferry or whether it's on foot, and on each of these cards is a die, and the die says what number I have to put um, on the building that I move my character to. The tricky thing is we've got a grid of buildings we're trying to visit, and once I've visited a, a particular building, and say I put a five on there, in the future if I want to visit buildings next to it, I've got to put a five or a six or a four, which means if I want to move to those, I've got to draft a five or six or a four. But those, um, the, the five or six or four that came out that's on all the cards that could draft, it might be on the thing that says, oh, that's a ferry, you can only move over to that street, and I don't even want to go to that street. So the entwined drafting is very, very cool and very different. Entwined drafting is really becoming a very popular thing these days, and I haven't seen one quite like this. Um, and yeah, it's really got a unique flavor. It doesn't really focus quite so much on crazy explosive combo chains, which honestly, 
I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of again, I'm kind of burned out on the super crazy combo tastic ones. This one's a much more restrictive puzzle about how to properly lay things out. So I liked it a lot. Why then does it come in at number 18? Production issues, quite frankly. The um, the text to be able to read to know where you can move your <coughs> meeples and you know what streets they can move to is practically invisible. It's very, very difficult to read. My old 50 plus year old eyes couldn't make it out. Even with reading glasses, I had a hard time. And so that was very frustrating. Now the publisher has released, you can go on BoardGameGeek and download and print out your own much better, higher contrast, much more readable player sheets. That helps a lot, but what comes in the box is very, very difficult to read, makes it not quite unplayable, but a real struggle to play. So I'm knocking it down for that. Also, even if, even with the high contrast uh, sheets, which I have played with, they help a lot. I'm kind of bummed by the layout of the um, the other sheet of paper you have that makes it very, very difficult to constantly remember. Right? If I'm unlocking these special powers, what street are they associated with? I literally can't remember anymore. Um, you know, and each street has their own icon, but they didn't put those icons on the street. So uh, there. I mean, I think the gameplay is great. Um, one of the better ones of this series, but. I would have liked to have seen the uh, the presentation done a little bit better to make it a little bit more playable, which brings French Quarter down to 18. But the gameplay is, is lovely. Then we've got number 17, Crossing Oceans. Um, I'm a little late to this. Matt Gertz actually put this out a while ago, but I finally got a chance to play it. This is the sequel to Transatlantic. <coughs> from designer Matt Gertz. And the interesting thing is, it's Matt Gertz getting back to his roots. You know, Co Concordia is such a huge hit. Now everybody wants to see Matt Gertz do Concordia-style hand management card, uh, you know, action selection, right? And that's great, and it was great in Transatlantic. I, in a lot of ways, I think Transatlantic was superior to Concordia. And I, would, and I would say, for the most part, Crossing Oceans is superior to Transatlantic because it switched away from the uh, Concordia action card system and went back to the uh, rondelle. And it was so great for me to be reminded just how amazing rondelles could be. And of course, Mac had some clever tricks up his sleeve for how the rondelle works and all that. But I was very, very impressed by this. And in fact, if for one thing, one little thing, this could have made it into my top 10, maybe even my top five of the month, and this was a very busy month. But there was one mistake Mac and Co. made with this. It's weird, they didn't make this mistake with Transatlantic. It's, it's what I call the terraforming Mars effect, where if you choose to play as a two-player game, two players have to do the work of four players. Um, it, nothing is done to scale things down so that um, by the, by, when we play the game, when we're about halfway through, we're starting to feel like, boy, the game really should have ended by now. I feel like I've done so much because I have done everything that I would have done in a four-player game. But because I'm playing a two-player game and we have to do the work of four players, I've still got another half of the game to go. That kind of drives me nuts. And I don't know why that was done. <coughs> Transatlantic didn't do it, and Transatlantic was so much better for it. Now, you're going to see my run-through for this coming soon. I don't think I've put it up yet. And I'll talk about this more in the final thoughts. And there's a couple of simple changes that could make this game so much better. So I'll talk about some suggested Rotto variants that would really make it sing, I think, <clears throat> at the lower player count. Higher player count, I don't think these are issues at all. But I only play as a two-player game, and that's why Crossing Oceans comes in at number 17. And we've got number 16, the Guilds of London, Wards of London. Now, the Guilds of London 
is one of the greatest modern designer card games ever from designer Tony Boydell, publisher of Tasty Minstrel Games, who is sadly no longer with us. This was one of the last things they ever published, the expansion, Wards of London. And I loved Guilds of London, except it was so mean and cutthroat. I, you know, I can, I can handle area control up to a point. Jen and I, we're okay with it. But this game, uh, Guilds of London, with its brilliant, one of the best multi-use card systems I've ever seen in a game, uh, driving an area control game, was just too mean-spirited with these, what are they called? The neutral liverymen that um, exist for no purpose other than just to come royally screw your opponent over without really benefiting you at all. They exist solely to stab, uh, stab your opponent in the heart, and we hated those so much. So, I was very excited when I found out Wards of London, instead of everybody working on one big communal board, we have our own board in front of us, then we have kind of shared boards on either side of us. So, supposedly this meant there was going to be less in-your-face, you know, area control and players just more focusing on their own stuff. I didn't find that to be the case, though. Um, we found lots of ways to very quickly still missile in on each other's territory. But still, I, I did think the Wards were actually a very, very cool, um, you know, new system. My problem was the game has gotten meaner because they added this new thing you can collect, this new resource that lets you um, overpower the neutral liverymen so that if somebody's collecting neutral liverymen to screw their opponent over, their opponent can get this defensive item. I forget what it was now. Uh, basically, was it a royal seal? Something like that. To, um, you know, to eliminate the, the liverymen. And so what happens, what was already a really nasty in-your-face game becomes an even bigger in-your-face game because now if I hit you, you can hit me back twice as hard. It just raised the heat. It made the combat or the, you know, the game even more conflict-heavy, which broke my heart. Um, it also had a ton of really cool new cards and effects and all kinds of stuff. It's great. If you have Guilds of London, I highly recommend it. <clears throat> But sadly, it did not make Guilds of London the Care Bear game I was hoping it was going to be. So it's number 16. Then we got number 15, Jockmock. And um, this is a game set in a Scandinavian um, winter uh, town where there's a market going on. The market is comprised of all kinds of cards. And one of the nice things about the game is every time you play, you're going to get a different combination of card types that all score in different ways and give you all kinds of cool special abilities. We've seen this in lots of games like um, Vale of Merchants, or um, Elysium. I always love that. You know, taking a bunch of different card types, mix them all together, and you get a unique feeling scoring game. And this one adds it to, um, what do you call it, a time track. Like uh, Glenmore, or, oh my gosh, the old game from Queen um, about archaeology. I can't think of them. Or, or Takedo is another one. I love time track games. Um, but often they don't work very well because players are not really incentivized to make big jumps. In Jockmock, here's the twist. Each player has two meeples on the um, time track. So you could afford to let one of your meeples jump really far ahead to get that perfect card you need, and your other meeple can be the slow one. I thought this was really clever, a great new um, twist on um, you know, time tracks, one of my favorite mechanisms of all time. And I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Now, I should say, it is still a bit on the light side. It is a very lightweight game. It's practically a gateway game. And honestly, I kind of wish that this brilliant implementation for Time Track was just, um, you know, some of the card effects are neat. A lot of them are really kind of boring, just doing simple set collection and whatnot. And I wish all the cards in there had really cool special effects. Um, but 
It was a little bit too lightweight, a little bit gateway, but I love the core mechanisms and I think it would make a fantastic gateway. Number 15, Jockmock. And we got number 14, River Valley Glassworks. Now you'll be seeing a run through for this for me very soon. It's uh, going to be crowdfunding and I've got a preview that'll be coming. Um, this is another game. This is interesting. This is from uh, Pinchback and Riddle and Hill, but it's not a roll and write. The, uh, these guys have gotten together to actually make um, something else. It is, um, it's actually, it's basically trying to set itself up to be an Azul killer. And that's a high bar to hit. Uh, Azul, one of the most successful games of recent years. Uh, you know, a really smart gateway game with beautiful components, um, fast play, and great puzzly elements. I could have just described Azul or River Valley Glassworks. Here's the thing that makes River Valley Glassworks where every round we have to give up one of our pieces of river glass to be able to draft different pieces of river glass so that we can install them on this big uh, table and the way we fill up the table is very smart. You want to get the uh, rare stuff over to the left, the common stuff over to the right, but you, um, well, uh, you know what? Honestly, it's an incredibly simple game to teach. Uh, I, I actually taught this to somebody who had never played board games, modern board games in their life, and they were drunk, and they were able to get up and play it very quickly. This is, I think, one of the big things that will set it aside from Azul, because it's got a lot of the same feel, a lot of the same vibe, but it's much more approachable. It's a very smooth, fast, uh, you know, elegant and beautiful lightweight gateway game um, that you can teach to anybody, whereas Azul has some real complex stuff. Also, Azul can be a very cutthroat game. This is a much more live and let live game, too. So it's got a lot to recommend over Azul. And I mean, the Andrew Bosley art is stunning. And the theme is so charming. Everything about it is lovely. It only comes in for me at number 14 because it is, uh, again, a very lightweight, very lightweight um, like almost lighter than Ticket to Ride, around, you know, Ticket to Ride or maybe even a little bit lighter than that. So that kind of knocks it down for me in general a little bit. I mean, obviously, we're not the target audience. Um, and so, I mean, it's a perfect game for new people to the hobby. I could see this becoming a family favorite. But there is a chance, I should say right now, for it to climb. Because while I haven't seen this, I've just got a prototype that just lets me play the base game. As I understand it, when it goes up on crowdfunding, there's going to be a bunch of extra stuff that can get added to the game, like unique player powers, um, you know, special scoring conditions, all kinds of extra stuff that will really elevate it. And I think if I could get my hands on some of those modules, then it's really going to sing. And it'll probably jump up several steps. Now, I don't know much about these, so I'll be watching for this crowdfunding campaign along with everybody else to see what these new features are. I just got a basic idea for them. The core game is lovely as a gateway, but if you're looking for something a little bit heavier, well, again, you can check out uh, my number 14, River Valley Glassworks, when it starts crowdfunding, and we can find out together what other stuff might be available. Okay, let's move on to number 13, Savernake Forest. And, um, you know, has entwined drafting become my favorite thing? It might be by now. Uh, you know, I mean, most people know it for Cascadia, that idea that, hey, that's the thing I want, and that means it comes with something else, whether I want the other thing or not. This one, we are trying to lay out, if I recall correctly, ultimately a four by four, maybe it was a five by five grid of cards. Every round you're gonna grab a card which has paths and different types of forest food and um, sometimes forest critters on them. And you're trying to make unique paths full of the right type of food for the right type of critters to score points. But the thing is, the path I want, 
might give me a bonus that I don't care so much about, like letting animals eat more food than they normally would. Well, actually, that's not quite true. Every bonus that comes with every one of these cards is great. That's actually one of the things about entwined drafting. Often, you have a thing you really want tied to something you don't want. Here, it's all gravy. They are all good options. You want all of these things. So it's an entwined drafting um, where everything is good and the tough decisions come from, which one do I want the most? Fun, fast playing, little puzzly game, little filler, um, you know, a 15 minute thing. And yeah, sweet and charming, easy to teach. Again, a bit more lightweight than one Jen and I go for, so it comes in a bit higher on the list, but I, I would never turn down a game of it. It's, it's so fun and fluid and compelling and satisfying from start to finish. Number 13, Savernack Forest. <clears throat> then we've got number 12, Dinosaur World, the third and final in the, in the Dinosaur Island series of games. There was Dinosaur Island and then Dinosaur Roar and Right, and now Dinosaur World. It's the biggest of the a group from Pandasaurus, and I think it's the best game. Um, not my favorite. I still think Roar and Right is my favorite of them, but Dinosaur World is so good. It does so much really great stuff. Uh, you know, it's a Jurassic Park simulator. We're trying to grow clone dinosaurs keep them uh, taken care of and keep the security high so that no tourists get eaten. We've seen this in a lot of games, including two other previous games in the series. What does this one add? Well, it adds this whole other element of as we build our dinosaur park, we're trying to put tiles next to each other to make the perfect driving tour. And that's a really cool addition to the game. It's kind of different than the route building that we were doing in Rar and Right, but kind of similar. Um, but it was really fun, this tile laying element that really elevated the overall experience. And of course, there's still all the drafting of, of the, the cool ember dice like the previous games to try to get the right DNA to make the right dinos and, uh, you know, and, and all the rest of it. Lots of worker placement. So. If I think it's actually arguably the best, strongest design, why is it not my favorite? <sighs> Analysis paralysis. One of the things that happens at the beginning of every round, each player drafts a card that gives them nine worker meeples. And then they will use those nine meeples over three different phases. And these meeples have different special powers depending on which phase they're used in. And when you get nine meeples right from the get-go and then you're gonna use them over three different phases of worker placement, uh, kind of like um, you know viticultures too. You got you know the 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 summer and the winter. Here you've got three of them, and the meeples do different things at different times. Long story short, when I found myself playing this with my wife Jen, I would choose mine, she would choose hers, and then I might as well get up and walk away from the table for five minutes while she tried to plan out everything. I just kind of, I, I, it's brilliant. It's a really sharp game, but. It is so analysis paralysis inducing that it really kind of slowed the game down for us. Well, for me, Jen, she was happy as all get out, you know, you know just you know, puzzling through everything. But it's, uh, you know, it's something you got to know going in. Either everybody, the game's going to go a lot longer than it should because of so much analysis paralysis, or you play with a lot of decisive players. So that's what keeps it out. Although, man, there's one more thing I got to mention about this. It didn't ship with it, but the developers have released solo rules that you can download and print out these stuff. My run-through is going to go up in a week or two, and I'm going to be demonstrating this solo mode, which is brilliant. I loved it so much. And in fact, here's the thing. I think it's a better solo game than it is a competitive game. Putting aside the analysis paralysis, the solo mode introduces like new special um, characters you can recruit with special powers, and it's just the idea 
of the dinosaurs being able to break out of their pins and run rampant all over the park. And then you've got to use some of your workers to capture them and put them back in their pens. It makes the game so much better. Why isn't this stuff in the base game? It'd be hard for me to go back and play the base game after having played the solo. And what bugs me even more, why didn't they do the tiny bit of extra work and turn this amazing solo mode into a great cooperative mode as well? Because it would totally work. Now I'm going to demonstrate all this for you in the run through. Uh, like I said, in a week or two. Watch for it, folks. It's so cool. I'm really impressed. Um, and yeah. I mean, this game could have been in my top 10 of the year if, that, if they had done the extra work to turn that solo into a co-op game. Um, then I wouldn't mind the AP so much because I would help Jen with her AP. But anyway, all that, that was number 12, Dinosaur World. Oops, of course, wouldn't you know it, uh, right in the middle of entry number 11, my battery in my phone went dead. So I have moved positions and moved days. It's the next morning and uh, the sun is out, but oh man, it's getting cold out here. And now I will continue. <clears throat> this episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Well, before I do, uh, you got a slightly better view of what makes Sedona so special. I think you can see up, uh, yeah, there we go, in the background, some very big, cool mountains. And now you're right in the middle of the wind, so you might be picking up some wind noise too. I think you can see some more cool rock formations over there and whatnot. So that's all very nice, but I'm going to face this way so the mic is somewhat protected from the wind as we continue with number 11, Death Valley, which is another game from Button Shy. And oh, this is one of my absolute favorites. I think it's the bee's knees. It's also probably the most beautiful Button Shy game out there. Uh, the art is really absolutely wonderful. The colors and the design, everything about it is just delightful. But what is it? It's a push-your-luck card drafting game where on your turn, there's a face-down deck of cards and one face-up, and you're going to pick. Take the face-up card or get lucky and draw blind from the face-down deck. Either way, you're going to get a card that extends your trip through Death Valley, and you add it to a line of cards that represents all the places you've gone. But here's where the push-your-luck is. If you end up with three um, uh, types of location, or I'm sorry, three of the same type of location, you'll bust and you'll lose all of the progress you've made on your trip. All those cards will just get shuffled back into the deck, and it's painful. Um, so you're trying to get a variety of different types of locations, um, but you're often drawing blind or what you can see face up will make you bust. So what are you going to do? Well, one thing you can do is on a turn, instead of drawing, you can journal your trip, which is to say you take 
um, one or more cards from your trip and move them down to the journal line. And then they can't be lost if you bust. You can still bust. Uh, the stuff in your journal can still make you bust. But um, you can have a log stuff. But here's the problem then. Cards are generally more valuable if they stay up in the trip. They're less valuable for in-game scoring if they're down in the journal. Although that's not always the case. Sometimes cards want to be in the journal. There's a lot of variety. It's a super brilliant game and honestly oh and it has a great solo mode built in too this would rank much higher probably in my top five of the month except for one thing it's an 18 card game and one of those cards is uh, pretty aggressive needlessly so and I just wish it wasn't there if that and you know you could say oh just ignore that one card but in a game with 18 cards you can't ignore any so that's kind of really the only bummer that keeps Death Valley out of my top five of the month but even still it's probably going to be a keeper for us because we like it so much okay then let's move on to uh, number 10, Agropolis. More button shy goodness. Now, this is basically the sequel. Oh man, the wind is picking up here. This is the sequel to Sprawlopolis, which I've mentioned, talked about in a previous Rotto Roundup. Uh, it is a very fast uh, tile laying or card laying game where you're uh, trying to stack cards on top of each other, grid style. Uh, in the original Sprawlopolis, you're making an urban metropolis city environment. Uh, and in Agropolis, instead, you're in an agrarian area trying to make really great farmlands. Every time you play, you draw three cards randomly, flip them over, and those become the three objectives you're trying to score. And uh, yeah. I'd have to say, overall, if you could only get one, Agropolis is probably the superior title because uh, it makes things, it's a bit heavier, it's a bit more complex. City parks of, uh, of Sprawlopolis have been replaced with animal um, fields, and there's three different types for cattle, pigs, and chickens. But these fields can actually be broken into double fields. And overall, with these new fields, you've got a lot more complex and interesting objectives to try to solve. Uh, and it also even comes with like an extra bonus difficulty mode. Um, it was called the feed variant or something like that, if you're looking for even greater challenge. Personally, I prefer the setting of Sprawlopolis, but um, you know, uh, this one, it's Agropolis, is hard to beat for the gameplay. Now what I need to, is to get that third game from Buttonshy that lets you combine the two into one big epic Opolis game. Maybe I'll be covering that in a future roundup. Anyway, let's move on to number nine, Zombie Crisis. <clears throat> this is on I have wanted to play for quite a while. It's from the designer of, oh, I can't think of the name of it. I should have written it down here. Um, but I, since I can't, I'll just move on. It was, if I recall correctly, a Japanese design game, or from a Japanese designer, I should say. But it's a two-player cooperative limited communication game where we are trying to survive in the zombie apocalypse. One player is the uh, the fighter, the defender at the gates of our human, uh, you know, encampment, trying to fight off wave after wave of zombie. The other player is the scout out there in the wild, figuring out where the zombies are, what their weaknesses are, and trying to communicate that back to the first player. But they have very, very limited communication that they can use. And after they've done their scouting and uh, taken a peek at what some of the face-down zombie cards are, well, they can reveal some information about what they've seen. Um, and it's a really brilliant system. The more cards they look at, so the more they discover, the less information they can send. The fewer cards to look at, the more they can send. And that's a tough choice for them. But then either 
way, once they've sent the information about like what the weaknesses are, what the special effects of the zombies are, which remember are all face down, the defender doesn't know. Now the defender has to deploy um, defense cards, different types of weapons uh, in different columns with their best information they've got from the scout. And hopefully the scout, they can intuit based on what did the scout not tell me? If I can figure that out, I can maybe make some smart decisions about where to deploy the flamethrower, the machine gun, or whatever, and um, most effectively take out zombies without accidentally taking out human survivors who could come and join us and give us special powers. It's freaking brilliant, this game. And here's the deal, folks. Here's how you know it's good. Jen said, this is the best zombie game I've ever played. Now, Jen does not like zombies. She doesn't care for it at all. And this one has some fairly gruesome imagery in it, or, you know, just grotesque, you know, gross, bloody zombie type stuff. I guess this is based on a video game. I'm not sure about that. But I think it is. Uh, but anyway, it's basically a tower defense cooperative game with imperfect communication. And it is the bee's knees. And no one is talking about this. And they really should. I highly rate it. Um, and again, for Jen to say, yeah, that's a zombie game I would enjoy playing. Well, that's saying something. Number nine, Zombie Crisis. Then we've got number eight, Brussels, 1893, the new Belle Epoque version. Now, I, I'm pretty sure Brussels made my top 10 of the year back in probably, what, 2014? 2015, something like that, when it originally came out. And I think to this day, it is a brilliant, brilliant worker placement design. One of the all-time greats, because every worker you place, uh, you're, um, it's choosing for you a bid in an auction, simultaneously an area control thing, and simultaneously the action you want to do as well. So it's always been brilliant, but it's now got a new version some of the rules have been tweaked and uh, smoothed out. There's some definitely new stuff. There's now a fourth thing that your workers can do uh, because uh, one of the things you can do in Brussels 1893 is build buildings. Originally, you can only build them out on the worker placement board. So then if other players went to a place where you built a building, you get a bonus. Now you can build those buildings off to the side. So it becomes another different area control minigame. So workers have four functions now. And then um, there's a bunch of other really cool tweaks and new additions to the game. Um, but really, that the biggest change is that new Belle Epoque board where you can build buildings. Oh, and there's a uh, glass. Glass is a new building material. Um, yeah, there's just a bunch of really cool uh, new things. So I would say it's even better than the original Brussels 1893, and that's saying something. So why doesn't it come in higher? Well, hey, it's in my top 10 of the month. But um, going back to play Brussels 1893 makes me realize just how much Jen and I have changed as gamers over the years. Because back in, you know, over half a decade ago when I originally played this, I wasn't really bothered by the aggressive or kind of passive aggressive moves you can make to mess with your opponent by cutting off the perfect uh, worker placement spots that they want to go to as part of setup for a round and, um, and you know, the battle for area control and all of that. Um, but we just find we're having a harder time with it these days. And the it's not you, Brussels1893, it's me. I've become even more Care Bear over the last half a decade than I was originally. And so, while we think the game is brilliant, it's just a little bit harder to commit to this game where you can make really just kind of jerk moves all the time uh, in sort of a passive-aggressive way to mess with your opponent. And it's even bigger now because, hey, if you can cut off portions of the board, they're where I invested my building so that I can get those air controls. It's even more in your face. So 
I, I don't know. I, I still think the design is brilliant, but I think I might just be sticking to Brussels 1897, the card game, which isn't quite so aggressive anymore with the, like the dummy characters that you place out in a uh, two-player game to, to really mess with your opponent and stuff like that. Anyway, though, still absolutely brilliant, better than it ever has been, Brussels 1893 with Belle Epoque. Okay, number seven on the list. Oh man, I've been wanting to play this for a while and I finally got a chance. So Clover. And I can now see why so many, for so many people, this is the ultimate party game. Um, I don't know, man. This is really fairly crunchy as a party game. This is a very hands-down, thinky-thinky-thinky. Uh, the group I played it with, there was one person who literally, okay, you know, it was the first half of the game when we're actually figuring out our clovers, and um, I'll explain what that means in a second. They had to actually leave the table and go somewhere else and think about it for five minutes. A party game that encourages everybody just to stay away from each other for ten minutes, I don't know. But then the second half of the game when we're all trying to solve the puzzle cooperatively together, Oh man, uh, then we really get involved. Uh, if you don't know what it is, this is basically a game where everybody gets this cool little plastic clover and four, four cards that each have four words on them. And the cards get randomly deployed around the clover, and then on the edge of the clovers, we have to come up with single words that um, summarize the two cards that ended up next to each other in the clover, and we have to do that four times. Then um, we... Uh, take those cards off, shuffle them up with another card, and reveal them, and then everybody else has to look at my clover and figure out with my four code words what, how um, these now all of a sudden five cards, one of them is a fake that will mess you up, how those five cards are supposed to be arranged back the way I originally put them. And may sound complicated, but it's really simple and intuitive when you get going, and it is freaking brilliant. I see why everybody is so over the moon, why it rated so high in the recent R&R Top 10 Party Games we did. And yeah, I'd have to agree. If I could go back, I'd probably put this maybe as my number one party game of all time. It's so brilliant. Except for one thing. Except for, except for two things. Two things that drive me absolutely batty about this game. Uh, this could have been my number one game of the month, quite frankly. The core design, and I don't really care for party games, but this one is so good. So good. Except for two things. One, there's no score. And that is criminally overlooked that they did not bother to do that tiny little bit of extra work so that, hey, um, after it's over, tell us how good we did. Give us some kind of idea. Give us some kind of metric. It's absolutely crazy. I, what other game does this? Codename gives you a score. Games generally give you a score. So players can get, oh man, we should do better. Or, you know, I mean, And you can make up your own scoring system, but that's not our job. That's not the job of the players. It's the job of the developers. And the fact that they did not have a scoring system in place um, is really left a sour taste in my mouth, quite frankly. Uh, and then the other problem, too, is officially um, this game is not, does not support two players. But it's probably at its best as a two-player game. It's so freaking brilliant as a two-player game. And I'm kicking myself for years now I haven't tried it because the developers decided, no, we, want, we don't want money. We don't want um, people to know that this is an amazing two-player experience. Better than Codenames Duet. Amazing, quite frankly. At least as good as. CGE gets it. They know um, that Codenames work well for a two-player. But the So Clover developers, they're just say no. Um, you can't play this unless it's a party game. Now, of course you can. I'm here telling you folks, So Clover is freaking brilliant as a two-player game. And so uh, spread the word, except for the fact that it does not come with a scoring system, which makes for 
a, a sadly anticlimactic ending to a game, and that's really kind of a bummer. Like I said, if it wasn't for that, the, um, it'd probably be my number one game of the month. But even still, I'm going to rate it pretty high at number seven. So Clover. Then we move on to number six, uh, the Cascadia Rolling Series, specifically two games, um, Rolling Hills and Rolling Rivers. Um, and basically, this is a roll and write set in the kind of Cascadia setting, but with really radically different gameplay. Uh, do not expect this to feel like, oh, this is kind of like a slightly simpler version of Cascadia. No, it's got the same trappings of Cascadia, the same types of animals, the same environments, but a radically different style of gameplay driven by Roland Wright that is absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I liked it quite a bit, as did Jen, as did Amy and Maggie. This is interesting. Uh, we covered these on the channel, and uh, Amy and Maggie covered rivers. I covered hills. Uh, I showed solo. They showed multiplayer. And, I mean, overall, I, I think the game is absolutely, uh, you know, just crackerjack. No surprise. Basically, the way it works is every round some dice are rolled, a communal pool, and each player has their own personal pool. And after the dice come out and they show the different types of animals, you know, the five types from Cascadia, each player picks one type of animal that they are going to collect, you know, whether it's the hawks or the elk or whatever, and marks down on their board how many they collected. Then, um, here's the brilliant part of this game, folks. At any given time, there's upwards of four different I, usually they're called recipe cards. They're cards that say, hey, to score this particular uh, environment, you need to have two hawks, an elk, and a grizzly or something like that. And then you can score your points and uh, you know, get bonuses and stuff like that. Um, and we've seen so many recipe fulfillment games. Hey, there's a card, or there's several cards, and everybody's racing to complete the cards and whatnot. This game does something so brilliant that so reinvents the idea of recipe fulfillment games. Watch the run-throughs, folks. I mean, uh, just see how amazing it is. It turns into a conveyor belt, where once a card comes out, you've got four rounds to try to score it. And you could score it as many times as you want during those four rounds. Um, put so much more excitement and drama and tension I think it's brilliant. I think, um, given time, conveyor belt gaming might be my favorite mechanism of all time. Every time I've ever seen a game that features um, stuff you need to do, but it's on a conveyor belt, so you only have so much time to get it done, and you feel that pressure, it's just freaking brilliant. And I gotta say, the Cascadia rolling systems use them to very, very good effect. My only complaint, the other thing, the thing that keeps this just out of my top five, coming in at number six this month, is. Like Cascadia, this game lasts for 20 rounds, and I kind of feel like that's five rounds too long. I kind of wish the developers, in the same way the Cascadia landmarks introduced kind of like a speed variant for the game, I kind of wish they just had a way to play, hey, you know what? I mean, actually, if you watch my final thoughts, I talked about here's a variant you could use to make this game last for 15 rounds instead of 20, and then... I think it would be chef's kiss perfect. I played it that way. Jen and I liked it more. 20 rounds, the game just overstays its length or welcome just by a tiny bit. 15 rounds is perfect. Fingers crossed the fine folks at Flat Out maybe make that an official variant down the road because that's the only thing that keeps Cascadia rolling. Hills or rivers out of my top 10. If you're asking me though, which should I get? If I can only get one, because it's crowdfunding right now, um, you know, and we did sponsored previews for it. If you'd only get one, 
Honestly, I think Hills is the better one, but you might want to go with Rivers if you're a true diehard uh, Cascadia fan because the Rivers version has one of each game has four maps. Uh, for both of them, one of the maps are almost exactly the same. Two, uh, one of the maps is radically different, and then two are just kind of variants of each other. The um, the radically different map in Rivers is the closest thing to the original Cascadia experience. But honestly, I think I like the, uh, the different map in Hills better. But they're both fantastic. Honestly, hey, if you get both, you can play eight players because uh, you have enough dice for enough players. Regardless, either one is lovely. I definitely enjoyed time with number six of the month, Cascadia, the rolling, Hills and Rivers. Okay. Now let's talk about number five, Flashpoint, Legacy of Flame. This is a legacy game made out of the super popular evergreen uh, cooperative board game, Flashpoint Fire Rescue. And let me tell you folks, <clears throat> well, first of all, I did a sponsored preview for it, so you can bear that in mind. But I got to say, for me, this fixes Flashpoint. Flashpoint, I always thought, was a brilliant design that was just way too lightweight and chaotic and random for me and Jen. Didn't care for it. But now, the Legacy game introduces some new elements. Uh, versions of things you've seen in some of the expansions, like event cards and whatnot, that just elevate the game so much, make it so much better. Plus, the fact that it is a campaign game and um, you know makes injuries meaningful. It said, you know, they don't just shake them off and get back up and run back into the fire. If they get an injury while fighting a fire, this permanently affects them. And so you feel the tension so much more than you ever have before. Flashpoint has always been great, but it is better than ever. And you can watch my uh, sponsored preview for it right now. I think uh, it's about to launch in a, the next week or so. I think on the March 12th, uh, but you can get a sneak peek ahead of time and see just how fantastic it is. It made me a Flashpoint believer. I was never a Flashpoint fan. I respected it, but did not want to play it. Now I do. I want to go back and finish that campaign. Let's move on to number four, Solar Sphere Expansions. This is a uh, set of modules, like, you know, new cards, um, you know, new aliens to recruit as you try to build the Solar Sphere. And Solar Sphere is a game I've covered before, so you can watch my original run through. It's a dice worker placement game with really some of the best dice mitigation this side of Castles of Burgundy, quite frankly. Um, but a really, really sharp game that I already liked. So what did the expansions add? Like I said, a bunch of new cards and whatnot, but two um, new module-y type things. One is an extra board, a very clever rondelle that now you can use dice to move one of two meeples, or if you upgrade both meeples, around this rondelle and get a bunch of extra benefits. That's really great. And also this idea of remote robot workers that, um, you know, this is a worker placement game. You can can get blocked from going to a place you want. But if you install one of your remote robot workers in a zone, you can always go there no matter what. You'll never be frozen out. And I think both of these are gr nice, wonderful little bonuses. They're not mandatory. I mean, uh, Solar Sphere didn't need them, but I do like both of them, and I'd probably always choose to play with both of them. And uh, yeah, uh, honestly, it's just a really solid expansion that makes a great game even better. There's not much more to say about number four of the month, Solar Sphere Expansion. If you like the original Solar Sphere, you will not be disappointed by this expansion. Okay, 
Then let's go on to number three, um, Viscounts of the West Kingdom. This is a double feature, Keepers of Keys and Gates of Gold. These are two separate expansions available for Viscounts of the West Kingdom. I like them both quite a bit. Uh, they both add different things. And one thing I'll tell you right now, folks, don't try to play Viscounts of the West Kingdom throwing everything in all at once. Uh, definitely treat these as modulars. Take elements from one or the other, combine, mix and match, and you'll have so much replayability for Viscounts of the West Kingdom, you won't know what to do. And Viscounts of the West Kingdom to date is still the best of Garpil Games' games as far as I'm concerned. Uh, better than the South Tigers games, better than the North Sea games, and the best of the uh, West Kingdom games. And this just makes it better, adding so many cool new features. Uh, what's it? The Keeper of Keys expansion? That adds treasure chests which all, with really huge bonuses. Um, and oh, public buildings. After you've built your own buildings, you can upgrade them to be more powerful buildings that are limited use or I mean a limited availability so you're racing to get those done. Gates of Gold adds several things. Most importantly the idea of immigration. That um, there are new super powerful types of cards. Foreigners from foreign lands who can come and join your kingdom and the king has kind of insisted on this but to be able to do it you have to get king's orders through your deck and so you have to do some deck manipulation in the deck building portion of the game. I think both expansions are great. Gosh if you made me pick one I'd probably pick uh, Gates of Gold because mostly I enjoy the subject matter of that more. Uh, the idea of immigration and um, you know opening doors. I mean, I, thematically, I just I, I really really dig it. But they're both great expansions. My only complaint about both of them is Viscounts was already on the long side. Gameplay-wise, I really kind of wish um, these expansions would have taken the opportunity to do a, uh, what do you call it, a Terraforming Mars Prelude-style thing, where, hey, can we have a version of the game that's 30% shorter, especially with all these cool extra bonuses that have been thrown in that don't increase the length of the game, but just make things more complex, and so therefore more analysis paralysis prone and slow the game down. Man, Viscounts is really just begging Begging, I gotta say, for a prelude-style set of rules so you could just get a full game of it that much quicker. That's my only complaint uh, for my number three of the month, a tie between Viscounts of the West Kingdom, Keeper of Keys, and Gates of Gold. Okay, now let's talk about number two. Seasons of Rice. Buttonshy does it again. And for the record, folks, this is the second best game in all of the Buttonshy library. And that's talking about dozens of games. To be fair, I've only played about, I think... I think I've played 10 Button Shy games, and of the 10 I've played, the best one by far is Circle the Wagons, and the second best by far is Seasons of Rice, and it's absolutely brilliant. A two-player only um, closed hand drafting and then tile laying game using that patented button size system of, hey, uh, shuffle the cards up, draw three, flip them over, so those become the three objectives we're trying to score uh, this time. Oh, but wait, no. They do it differently this time. Uh, each player draws two cards, flips them over, and picks one to be their special player power. So it's a kind of a twist on what Buttonshy normally does. Then play the game. And this is uh, you know, the whole, hey, have a hand of cards, keep one for myself, hand the rest to my neighbor, they hand to me, we keep going until we run out of cards, and we're trying to lay out um, stuff as best we can. It's freaking brilliant. It's fast playing. Uh, it shows just how phenomenal closed hand drafting games can be. I mean, for years people said, oh yeah, you can't have a good one. You gotta have at least three players. But no, I've always thought, I mean, ever since I played Notre Dame, the closed hand drafting and uh, Seven Wonders originally before 
they gutted it. They ruined Seven Wonders. But anyway, um, Seasons of Rice just goes to show how phenomenal and fun two-player uh, closed drafting and then tile laying on top of it can be. Smart, fun, fast, fast game. Uh, you can watch my run through to see more about it. Uh, yeah, Jen, I love it. This is a keeper for life kind of a thing. One of Button Shy's best. But folks, we've got one more to talk about. The number one of the month, Zanglo First Empire. And oh man, I am so glad I tried this for a couple of reasons. One, I covered Zanglo many, 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 many years ago. The original first edition. Um, this is a new edition from a different publisher. So, uh, you know, they, you know, the designers have taken the opportunity to go back and revisit their maybe their greatest design of all time and tweak things, add new things, um, you know, basically just improve the game overall. And I gotta say, Zanguo First Empire is such a big jump up from the original Zanguo. Uh, it adds a whole new element of the game, this uh, ships going on journey thing, so you've got another use for your cards, and it brings in a new type of, uh, you know, of, of official that you can deploy to all the different provinces, the uh, alchemist, which is tied in with that, uh, the emperor's task, which was an okay way of scoring randomly generated objectives, has been replaced with this much cooler, more elaborate thing, the uh, building up the terracotta army, and um, yeah, and there's just lots of smoothing outs, and it, the game is just so much better than it was half a decade ago when it first came out. So I'm ex so excited, but I'm excited for another thing too. I talked about, when I covered the original Zanguo, that for my wife Jen, at that point when we were still living in Malta, it, for her it was just too heavy, too complex, too cumbersome, too burdensome, that while she thought the gameplay was great, it was just too much going on for her to really enjoy it. And I don't know if some of the tweaks, if, if it's the game that's changed, or it's us that's changed, but Jen loved it too. She was just over the moon with it. I, and you know, you can go out and watch my original run through to see more. In a nutshell, this is a hand management card game where we are using cards, either deploying them to our own board to make certain actions more powerful, or sending them to the main board to um, actually activate those actions that we've invested in by giving up cards. The trick is that um, the cards have an uh, initiative number system on them, so you always want to play cards either higher or lower than the cards that have come before played by your opponent to be able to activate bonuses. And the types, whether you want to go high or low depends on where you're, what type of action you're doing. Zangle has always been brilliant, it's even better, and what makes me so happy is Jen is now down to uh, you know, build the Great Wall. Uh, she and I don't know if just we are in a different headspace now, but uh, Jen loved it. I loved it so much before. I love it even more now. It is my number one game of the month, Zanguo, First Empire. And phew, okay, folks, the wind just died for a second, so I'll give you one more quick uh, scan of the uh, surrounding environments before I go back to the RV and get to work editing this thing together. But there's one other thing, folks, that we've got to do now, and that is say a huge shout-out thank you to um, all the supporters of the show. There they are right there. And let me give a special personal shout-out by name to some of the higher-level backers, Adrian Dong, Amber Rail, uh, Denmo 
2030 CE, uh, Caitlin Albert, Dennis Inti, Eric Z, Jeff Glazen, Jay Huber, Victory BHG, Stacy Lee, Emma Bryce, Moltar, Nancy Pope, Mom Gamer, Dan Halligan, Charles Hill, Davey Davis, uh, Graham Wallace, uh, Nicholas Elkins, Heather Rudarian, Nate Ellis, uh, Chris Arnold, Michael Adams, Selma Lee, Asa Samelionis, Lex, Blake Wilson, April, The Griff, Steve Ercolini, um, Cheryl Howard, Dr. Fu, Jeff Young, Jimmy Schroeder, Hanson, Sharon Laubach, Mike Bloom, uh, Dave Salvatore, uh, Hans Peter Bach, Hello Solo, uh, Marilyn, Jerry Reese, Cobra Misfit, uh, Evitar, and Marlon Cruz, aka El Crosso. There were some new names in there. Welcome to the party, everybody, and thank you to all of you and to the rest of the names that just flew by. And thanks to everybody who watched. That is another month rounded up. Hopefully you enjoyed it, folks. We'll be back again in around 30 days. And I'm going to save the final thanks to Arcane Wonders for sponsoring the show and making it all possible. Keep an eye out for Aquatica Coral Reefs coming soon. Oh, it looks fantastic. Talk to you, talk to you later, everybody. Blah, 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 blah. So long. Bye-bye.